This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. Continuing in the Word of God, and we are slowly... I don't want to say plodding, we are plowing through the book of 1 Samuel, taking some time in this Old Testament book. These are words, Paul says, that are written for our instruction. People who have long since died and been gathered to their fathers, but the Holy Spirit speaks through through these words written 3,000 years ago to us, his people. And we are in 1 Samuel chapter 28. We're doubling back a bit. We did 27 and 29 last week. We are in chapter 28, uh, and let's read these words together, which I believe will be on the screen behind me. 1 Samuel, chapter 28. Listen to the word of God. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. And Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, well, Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When, so, when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or urim or prophets. And Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes. And at night, he and his and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like? He asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands 
of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and all that night. When the woman came to Saul and saw that he was greatly shaken, she said, Look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to do. Now, please listen to your servant and let me give you some food so you may eat and have the strength to go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his men joined the woman in urging her, urging him, and he listened to them. He got up from the ground and sat on the couch. The woman had a fattened calf at the house, which she butchered at once. She took some flour and kneaded it and baked bread without yeast. Then she set it before Saul and his men, and they ate. And that same night they got up and left. This is the word of the Lord. And quite the story it is. This is a sobering chapter about the consequences of resisting the voice of God. King Saul, in his own way, was a religious man. A man with many God words, but he did not have a heart for God. And when the chips were down, when things really mattered, Saul was unwilling to stop and wait for God, and he was unwilling to obey and trust God when it really mattered. And now, 40 years into his reign, Saul is a man who has been cut off from God, a man who has cut himself off from God, and now he is terrified of the enemy, and he goes to great lengths, to terrible lengths, to find out his destiny so he can manifest some control over his fate. The Philistines, Israel's long-standing enemy, have launched an all-out attack, and they've swung far to the north. They've cut across horizontally to the east to penetrate this mountainous spine that runs north-south into Israel. They've crossed into where it opens up, and their aim, it seems, is to sever Saul's kingdom in two and seize control of the north-south trade route. And Saul has gathered what forces he has. He's advanced to meet them. And the Israelites are camped on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. And from the mountainside, they look out and they see the valley filling up with the enemy horde. And the king is filled with dread as he hears the tramping of the Philistine boots in the valley below. He can hear the rumble of their chariots. He can see the flash of their swords and their weapons as they sharpen them for the battle on the morning. Saul's heart is filled with dread and his heart is beating wildly within him. Saul has not always been a cowardly, fearful man. There had been a time when the spirit of the mighty God had descended upon him and Saul had slaughtered his oxen and he had led the men in charismatic, spirit-filled victory 
over the enemy. That was many years ago. And it has been many years since Saul has felt the spirit of the Lord descending on him in power. Today, the day before the battle, Saul is alone. Without God, without hope, left completely to his own devices. And the king feels a terrible premonition of what tomorrow holds. And he can feel his heart racing in his chest. And Saul is in the grip of a wild, panicked anxiety. And even though Saul and God have not spoken for quite some time, Saul, in his desperation, tries everything to receive a word from God. Saul, like many people, is desperate for a word from God, some kind of direction, not out of love of God, but out of a fear of making a mistake that will destroy him. Saul tries to get a word from God, but the prophet Samuel has long since died. Saul has slaughtered the priests who have the sacred means of discerning an oracle from God. And there is no dream that is given to Saul to give him direction. And Saul is desperate because God is no longer picking up the phone. God's no longer taking Saul's calls. He has chosen to be on his own. Now, when Saul had come to the throne decades ago, under Samuel's influence and direction, Saul had initially been quite zealous. He had rid the land of the mediums and the spiritists, the people who could summon up ghosts from the dead. And this is in obedience to the book of Deuteronomy. If you go to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 18, God says to Israel, to Moses, let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or a spiritist who consults the dead. These were all well-known pagan practices in Canaan and in the surrounding nations but for the Israelites, this is one of the worst sins, an abomination that would get you cut off from the people of God because it meant you were unwilling to listen to the voice of God. You were refusing to trust God and choosing alternate means to determine your destiny. And over the preceding chapters, we have watched Saul's slow, tragic descent into sin. And now, as we near the end of the book, Saul sinks to the ultimate low because the very king who had ordered that these practices be wiped out in the land now, in his desperation, turns to them in himself. He's rid the land of the mediums and the spiritists, but he's never rid his own heart of the sin that would seek them. Saul is desperate to know his destiny. He's desperate to find something that will give him direction as to what he should do. But he's unwilling and by this point unable to turn to God wholeheartedly 
in repentance, to rend his garments and to seek the Lord. He's long past that point. And so Saul asks his advisors, is there anyone, is there any old woman left in the land? Anyone who still remembers the old ways? And sure enough, his advisors are aware of a woman in the village of Endor. This is only six or seven miles away from the battlefield. And Saul would have had to travel, you know, two or three hours, but right alongside the front lines, vulnerable to detection and capture by the Philistine patrols. And so Saul and two men slip out of the Israelite camp late at night. Saul takes off his royal robes, a symbolic divestment, divestment of the authority of his office, and he goes in plain clothes with his men by night. By night. Perhaps for safety, but also because night is the time when mediums and witches do their business. This woman he's going to seek is a woman of the darkness. And very literally, we could translate her title as a ghost wife. This is a spirit woman. But she's very nervous. She's very reluctant to comply with these strangers who pound at her door in the middle of the night. How is she to know they're not federal agents trying to catch her in some crime? And Saul, in verse 10, swears an oath to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And notice, even in this low moment, as Saul is meddling in the occult, he can't help himself speaking God talk. He swears by the Lord. Saul is deeply religious, even in his sin. And this is really a senseless and blasphemous oath, because here Saul is swearing in the name of God that he is going to disobey God and do something filthy and evil. And the name of the person that Saul wants summoned up from the underworld is Samuel, the prophet of the Lord. Why Samuel? Because Saul knows that Samuel is the one person who could be trusted to tell Saul the truth. Samuel was a crusty old prophet someone who was utterly devoted to the voice of God, someone who didn't fear or flatter anybody, who faithfully spoke for God. And Saul is starving for revelation from God. He's been groping in the dark, and he can't hear the voice of God himself. But there is one person he knows hears from God. And Saul must have this word, even if he has to drag Samuel up from the dead. And so the ghost wife starts muttering her incantations. The author for Samuel is not very forthcoming in details, but the, the Hebrew word he uses suggests this woman was employing a ritual pit. And we know comparing this with other practices in the ancient world, this would have involved some kind of divinization to figure out where the optimum place was to dig down into the underworld. An animal would be sacrificed, most likely a black dog. The hole would be dug, blood would be spilt, 
silver objects like a silver ear would be placed in there and a ladder or a staircase would be put down there so the spirit could ascend from the depths below. And they had to be sure that when the whole thing was done, they would cover up the pit again so the door to the underworld would be closed and no unwanted spirits could drift out. And so this woman starts her incantations and her spiritual process and then she sees Samuel. There's nothing in this story, by the way, that suggests that this woman is faking anything. There's no deception in this episode, at least, and there's no reason to try to wriggle out of that fact in the story because the Bible is fully aware that there is a world of ghosts and spirits out there. And of course, there's plenty of fakery and deception going on. We're not naive people, but there are also spirits, malevolent spirits, who are more than willing to engage with curious and foolish people. And it's a curiosity we should resist out of faithfulness to God. So it really is Samuel that appears. The story says the woman saw Samuel in verse 12. And when she sees Samuel before her, she screams in a loud voice because she realizes in that moment there is only one man in the kingdom who would be desperate enough to make contact with the dead prophet, and that is King Saul. She realizes the identity of her nighttime vision, but Saul convinces her, go on, go on. He can't see the apparition himself. What do you see? I see, she says, I see an old man coming up wrapped in a robe. And that must have clinched it for Saul because Samuel is famous for his robe. Since he was a little boy, remember Hannah would bring him, she would make him a little robe every year. The size is going up, bringing it to the temple when she would visit him. This was the robe that Samuel was wearing when Saul in his desperation had reached out and tried to pull the departing prophet back and he torn the robe. And now even after death, Samuel is wearing his distinctive robe and now the prophet is rising from the shadows of the underworld for one last confrontation with the king very well god seems to be saying if you're so eager for samuel i will send him to you but i'm not promising you will like what he has to say Samuel seems quite annoyed at being summoned out of the sleep of death. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? He asks angrily. And Saul answers him in one breathless, run-on sentence. I'm in great distress. For the Philistines are warring against me. God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. And I've summoned you to please tell me what I shall do. And Saul needs, he needs reassurance and direction from the prophet but he's unwilling to do the hard painful work of repentance and as always Saul's words are filled with self-pity with a subtle blaming of God for his situation there's no brokenheartedness there's no longing for God just please Samuel give me the answer to get me out of this terrible situation 
Why are you asking me? Samuel says. Saul's name, Saul, means ask in Hebrew. And now at the end of his life, Saul is asking, but he's asking too late. Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? Saul, Samuel says, Saul, Saul, I have nothing new to tell you. I can only repeat the word of God that I declared to you while I was alive. You failed to listen to God. You resisted him. You rebelled against him. You did not destroy the Amalekites like you were told. And your defiance cost you the kingdom, Saul. And as you figured out by now, the neighbor that is going to be given the kingdom is David. Saul, you persisted in living your life on your own terms. And I warned you and I pleaded with you again and again, but you hardened your heart and you would not listen and you were determined to be without God. And now you are. Alone, abandoned, forsaken, no one to turn to. And now, Saul, your time is almost up. The sand has nearly run down in the hourglass. Because when the morning comes, your army is going to be completely wiped out in battle. And you and your sons are going to be with me down in the shadows. And Saul had once stood head and shoulders above everyone else, but now he falls full length on the ground, prostrated in terror, consumed by fear, utterly shattered by this final word from Samuel. And perhaps in this moment, Saul is more spiritually open than he has ever been in his life. And just at this moment when there might perhaps be a crack opening in the door of repentance, the ghost wife returns to the room. She takes control and she makes sure the door is closed firmly on Saul. Saul is weak with hunger. He's not eaten for 24 hours. Whether he was fasting in preparation for this occult ritual or he was just so anxious that he couldn't keep any food down, he's weak with hunger. And the woman takes control and insists that Saul obey her and eat. It's not mere kindness, I think. This woman wants to make sure that before Saul leaves, they're deeply bound together 
by the ritual of hospitality. Because once they have broken bread together, Saul can no longer turn on her by the ancient laws of hospitality. Saul, weak, indecisive Saul as always, initially refuses, but he's overwhelmed by the woman and his two servants. And he agrees to eat. And the woman kills the fatted calf for Saul. I'm sure her only animal. And the night before his death, Saul is given a meal fit for a king. But really this is the last meal of a condemned man. And for her to fatten the calf and prepare the meat and to bake the bread would have taken her at least a couple hours. And there's Saul sitting on the edge of the bed, staring blankly at nothing falling into the darkness, overwhelmed by the fate that is rushing towards him. There is no greater horror than being abandoned by God. Nothing worse than crying out to God in great need And him refusing to answer, refusing to rescue. And the Holy Spirit this afternoon has a sobering word for all of us. A sobering word of warning before it's too late. Because your sin and my sin, when we persistently indulge in it, when we harden our heart against the warnings, the invitations of God, when we insist on ignoring his voice, there may come a point when we have passed the point of no return, when there's no going back and we're unable to repent, try as we might. Choices turn into habits and habits become character and then our character becomes our destiny. And we imagine that we can turn back whenever we want. We're in control of this sin. I can stop when I choose. I can go back to God anytime I want. For there is, there is a point like Saul when you pass the last exit on the highway and you're locked into your doom. And there is an end to the road. And what a terrible thing to come to the end of that road and learn the truth about ourselves. To come to the end of the road and be forced to eat the bitter fruit of all our sinful choices. Because there is a way that seems right to a person. But in the end, it leads to death.
And how could it be otherwise? Because if you consistently cut yourself off from life itself, only death can come to you. If you hate the lights and turn from the lights again and again, what is left but the darkness? Don't be deceived because there is a day coming. A day of judgment for each one of us. A day of reckoning. A day with no evasions, no excuses. A day when the truth, the dreadful truth about each one of us is laid bare before God and before ourselves. And you may have spent your whole life deceiving yourself. And then one day, the truth is revealed. This chapter teaches us the terrible cost of hardening our hearts before God. Of saying no to God so many times that in the end, God says to us, your will be done. Your will be done. And we're cast out into the outer darkness, far from the life-giving presence of our Creator. This is not a cheerful chapter. But this is not the only chapter in Scripture. Thank God it is not. Because Jesus has given his Holy Spirit and he is speaking to us today. And these words of warning are the words of love. No one here needs to end up in that place. And Jesus has come to rescue us all from our own fateful choices, to free us all from the slavery of sin and the doom that we have brought brought upon ourselves. You know, people long to have some assurance of their future, some comfort that in the end all is going to be well. And that's the reason people go to mediums and spiritists to have some kind of reassurance about their future and about their destiny. The realm of the dead has no hope to offer. Except this, that there is one man who has risen from the underworld. Not as a shade or a shadow. This man has stepped forth from death, blazing in immortal glory. And Jesus comes and he says to us, I am the first and the last 
I am the living one. And I was dead, but behold, now I am alive forever and ever. Jesus went down into death. And the light shone in the darkness, but the darkness could not overcome it. And he emerged with the keys of death and the grave hanging from his belt. And Jesus did this with joy for all who turned to him with their whole hearts. And for those who trust in Jesus and say, God, deliver me from the fate of my own sin. That sin no longer needs to hold condemnation and death no longer needs to hold terror. We're not left and abandoned by God, sitting hopelessly on the edge of the bed, staring into the blackness. We have the arms of Christ wrapped around us and we share in the glorious hope of the new creation. And when our eyes are fixed upon Jesus, we receive hope that our sin is not our destiny. Your sin is not your destiny. Because there is a different one that Jesus offers you. And he breaks into our path when all the exits have been passed and he offers us forgiveness and life and a new start. And I want to invite you in the name of Jesus to open your heart again to the Holy Spirit. To confess to him the little seeds of sin that in some of us have grown up quite a bit and are beginning to choke out the life of God placed within us. Let's bow our heads now and pray and ask for Christ once again to break into our darkness, to free us from slavery and to bring us back on the path of eternal life. Heavenly Father, we come to you uh, and we confess, Lord, that... Sin still has a powerful hold upon our hearts. And there are ugly things within us that want to destroy us and pull us down into the darkness. And we confess to you, Lord, that we have resisted your voice, that our hearts have not always been soft. We have been slow to obey you. We have been unwilling to trust your word. And we have shut our ears to those you have sent to warn us and invite us and pull us back to your path. And now we cry out to you again, O Lord. Revive us. Breathe the life of your spirit into our hearts. Lord, we are frightened of the doom that our own sin could bring upon us. Because every one of us has within himself or herself the ability to drift away from the living God. And we pray that your hand would reach down once again and seize hold of us, Lord, and place us back on the path of wholehearted trust 
and wholehearted obedience to Jesus. We are so small, we are so sinful, we are so lost apart from you. Lord, give us life again and help us put our hope entirely in Christ. In his name we pray. To the God who promises to always listen to those who cry out through Christ. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.